Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. There's always going to be noise. I like to call it noise. Kind of distractions from what's important and what we know our ultimate goal is. Make short-term goals, intermediate goals, and long-term goals. To get us to where we want to go is going to be more of a long-term goal. Am I optimistic to think that we could do it in the intermediate? Yes. Am I hell-bent on trying to do it in the short term? Yes. But, you know, I understand the reality of what we faced when we got here, of how building the team, building our talent, building our infrastructure. You have to learn to adjust to your personnel. And maybe there's something that in your scheme and your vision of long term that you got to try to tweak a little bit. Be flexible and not be so rigid in what you want to have happen and live in the moment. And hopefully you can still build that personnel up to be what you ultimately want. You have to just try to tweak your plan a little bit to help them. That's Jerry Stackhouse, coach of the Vanderbilt University men's basketball team and former NBA All-Star. With COVID-19, his team has faced cancellations, new health protocols, and a pandemic reality of isolation and empty arenas. He's also faced both winning and losing amid that environment. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of The Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk with Jerry because his challenges offer a compelling parable for the obstacles that every business leader faces these days. Leading a team has never been more complicated, balancing the high stakes of health, racial equity, and media scrutiny with the quest for performance. Jerry is both patiently tracking a long-term plan and impatiently pressing for improvement. And he's grappling every day with how young generations are responding to unexpected times and their intense desire for a return to normality. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Jerry Stackhouse, coach of the Vanderbilt University Men's basketball team and former NBA all-star 
Coach Stackhouse is coming to us from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, as I ask my questions from my home in Brooklyn, New York. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me, man. So this is your second season in charge at Vanderbilt, and it's hard to imagine two seasons that would proceed with so much disruption, right? COVID-19 cut short last year's NCAA basketball season, and since then, college basketball programs starts and stops, constant uncertainty. Leading an NCAA basketball program has never been easy, but these are new challenges. How has the job been what you expected it to be? And how has it been different? Yeah, I think really COVID has changed things. But I think for what we are able to control, I mean, the basketball part of it has been pretty good and pretty steady. You know, being able to to get in the gym and practice and obviously the, the day-to-day with our athletes and them, you know, being full-time students, obviously that's changed with everything kind of going virtual now. So that's had some implications as you might imagine when freshmen coming in you pretty much try to put your arm around them and make sure they get to class and do all these type of things and now they're doing everything on their own so it's about you know am I going to make sure I get on this zoom or am I going to get on my phone and get on social media so it's been a little bit of a challenge but our guys have been really great man for the most part man we got a lot of work in at the early part of the season we had all of our guys so we were able to practice you know, the summer was really different. We were the last game at the SEC tournament last year, and then they shut everything down after that. So it was different. It's not like we felt like we were in a bubble by ourselves. Everybody was affected by not being able to go and see recruits, not being able to get on the road, and not having the normal summer that you would have leading into a college season. But, you know, for the most part, I think we've made the best of it. Is your relationship with your guys different because of COVID, because of all the other things that are going on? Well, I think so, man. I think they really value that time together because they're pretty much isolated. When they go back to their dorms, they're not allowed to visit with each other or really come and see with each other. So they really enjoy that time. And we enjoy that time with them, you know, the film sessions, even when we have a a light day and they're still hanging around the gym. I was like, we might as well practice if y'all still going to hang around the gym. But they just like, no, we, we get a chance to talk to somebody. So it's that's just the new world that we're living in with COVID. But I do think we all become closer because we spend that time together. And you're teaching them and, and they're learning. You know, they're having successes. They're having some failures. I mean, it's all new to us, too. Yeah, the recent win for the team, but not all the games have gone well. There's been some media swirling as well. There's COVID, there's social justice actions, wins and losses. What's the measure of success for a program in an environment like this? There's always going to be noise. I like to call it noise. It's just kind of distractions from what's important and what we know our ultimate goal is. We make short-term goals. You kind of have intermediate goals and you have long-term goals. When I took this job, I knew to get us to where we wanted to go was going to be more of a long-term goal. Am I optimistic to think that we might could do it in the intermediate? Yes. Am I hell-bent on trying to do it in the short term? Yes. But, you know, I understand the, the reality of, of what we faced when we got here, of how building the team, building our talent, building our infrastructure. I think our infrastructure is to the point now to where we feel like we can really go out and have success. 
And I think that that was why I was brought here. You know, when I got hired at Vanderbilt, the talk was about trying to find their ceiling. I feel like we've had some good basketball teams, but can we find our ceiling or really feeling putting it all together, really investing into our athletics as other teams in the SEC has. And we got that commitment, got that commitment from our chancellor, got that commitment from our AD. So it's like, you know, we know where we are. The team that I inherited when I got here didn't win a game in the SEC. You know what I'm saying? And I have those same players minus a couple of draft picks. I lost my best player. I lost 24 points out of my starting lineup on the very first game of the SEC against Auburn. Um, and we've still found a way to win us three games. We feel like we're trending in the right direction with what we're doing and how we're going about it. I'm a firm believer that teams that play together and really understand how to share the floor together and understand the game of basketball can do some amazing things. So yeah, when you look at us on paper, it's probably realistic to say, okay, they're not going to be there right now. They're a year or so away. I think differently. I think that it can happen for us and that we can beat anybody that we play. And I'm really excited about my kids, their potential to, to finish out this year. There's a lot of noise that comes with these high visibility jobs. And it's fun to when you can answer the bell. And, and I think our true fans, they understand it, that we're part of a build. And I think that they see the progress that we're making. A lot of the folks listening to this are entrepreneurs or people who are trying to build their own teams, right? And sometimes they can get everybody they want. Sometimes they get who they have, right? And they're trying to go up against other teams that may be more resourced or more established in the marketplace. Are there key things that you anchor on about what kind of brings a team together? What makes a team work? You can have a plan of what, you know, in your perfect world, when you have all of the personnel that you want, you know, how things could pan out, but then you have to learn to adjust to your personnel. And maybe there's something that in your scheme and your vision of long-term that you got to try to tweak a little bit, you know, in the midterm. So you adjust. So I just think being able to be flexible and not be so rigid in um, what you want to have happen and kind of live in the moment. And hopefully, you know, you can still build that personnel up to be you know, what you ultimately want, you know, instead of having to go out and outsource it and think you got to get another piece or someone else, just work with them and eventually they'll maybe be able to accomplish the things that you want. But in the immediate, you have to just try to tweak your plan a little bit to help them. Um, the women's basketball team at Vanderbilt had to end their season due to health and safety concerns and COVID. How did that impact your team, like, do your players get worried about COVID? Are you worried about it? Yeah, I think we're all worried about it. I mean, it's like the happiest part of my day is when I get a, a text from my trainer and said, all COVID tests are negatives. <laughs> that's, that, that's the best part of my evening. I mean, we test three days a week. And I mean, I just said, you, you would think about, okay, the game, right? Like the game, the game, the game is not the most important thing for us right now. Getting to the game is the most important thing. And uh, making sure that we have an opportunity for our kids to compete when they make all these sacrifices of trying to stay out of harm's way. And it's still, it could happen. I mean, it could happen at the pharmacy. It could happen at the grocery store. So it's real. It's a reality of living and trying to play college basketball in a pandemic. And yeah, I try to be transparent, make sure I have full 
dialogue with my parents and our athletes because at the end of the day, it's, it's your decision. We just want to go by the protocols. There's nothing wrong with opting out. You know what I'm saying? I don't feel comfortable doing this, but our team, our parents, they want it. We take extra measures here. That's something that I'm truly proud of, that we make sure that none of our athletes, if they've had any dealings with COVID or anything, that they're not getting back on the floor until they have their MRI of their heart and there's a ramp up. We're not just throwing them right back out there. You got to respect the things that they dealt with. It wasn't just the COVID things. I think they were dealing with a, a ton of injuries, so it was hard for them to really feel the team that they felt could compete. And then obviously with the emotional side of it. But for us, shortly after that, I met with my team and uh, again, just kind of put it out there. We will not hold it against you in any way if you don't feel comfortable to be out here. But, you know, once you got a foot in the in the sandbox, you don't have to stay in the sandbox. So I think that's how we dealt with that and we continue to forge forward. Sports and basketball have played a big part in the anti-racism movement over the last year, especially the NBA. How do you talk with your players when it comes to the social justice issues? I mean, what do you hear from them about it? And to what extent is that part of the dialogue within the team? I hear optimism from them. I think um, when we had the George Floyd tragedy, I really think it just shocked everybody. And I, I really wanted to hear from my players. I mean, I wanted them to put something on paper. I mean, I was made a project for them to write me and kind of give me their thoughts and, and how they felt. And it was a range. But I think the majority of our guys were truly optimistic. I mean, I think we got to learn so much from them. This Generation Z, you know what I mean? I think they just think differently. I mean, it's the smartest generation that we've had. Do they, you know, have all the common sense every time? No, they're kids and we still got to keep them on track. But they got big ideas about, you know, how to solve this. So I, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to talk to them about something that they're obviously hadn't been the right answers to because we're still dealing with that right now. And it's a big part of our society. But the reality of it is, is let's try to educate ourselves, try to, you know, not let it be an elephant in the room to be bold enough to speak on issues, to stand up for. And I think the NBA has done a great job, you know, with the Black Lives Movement, being able to allow guys to wear things on their jersey, on the floor. I mean, they, they really took the lead on a lot of that. Obviously, they got a, a lot of pushback and a lot of negative feedback. So, I mean, it just shows you that it's there, it's real, and we got to try to fight it together. I just kind of left it open to my kids if they wanted to kneel, if they wanted to stay in the locker room. Some kids like maybe we could adopt some program or, you know, bring some kids into the games and stuff. But now we can't have fans at games. Hopefully, once we kind of get out of this thing, we can do some things more geared to addressing some of those issues. So it sounds like they feel this. I don't want to say burden or necessarily responsibility, but the fact that as athletes, they are role models and they have a certain platform that they can use. And it sounds like at this point, they're limited in how the ways they can express that. Yeah, I mean, that one kid, he just, he doesn't understand it. He couldn't fathom seeing that. Went to a private school, so he never dealt with any type of police profile, racial profiling or anything. Like, he couldn't fathom it. This is a black kid, you know? And then I got a kid that was like, I don't feel comfortable walking on campus sometimes, you know what I'm saying? This is something that's right around us and that these kids feel, and, and we got to try to find a way to help them with it. And then there's kids that's like, Man, it's been this long and hadn't anything changed. I'm just not optimistic, right, that it's going to change. So it's like, man, I got all these different views in my starting lineup. 
<laughs> so it's, and we're trying to get them to play together. But no, it's just the reality of how different people feel about different things. And I think we have to respect that. But that's the most important thing that we're not going to always agree. But we got to learn to live with each other and learn with different perspective and different views, different cultures. And uh, I think that's what makes America what it is. It's kind of a melting pot of people that can coexist together. But we want to see it lived out on a on a bigger scale than it is right now. Do they turn to you for guidance about how they should express themselves or like what's appropriate on social media or isn't? I mean, as an NBA player, I don't know whether you thought of yourself as a role model and whether you had a responsibility to leverage your platform. People didn't really talk that way, you know, back when you were playing, right? I don't think you just out taking a stance to take a stance on different things. And I, I don't feel like my guys expect me to go out and be someone who I'm not. I mean, I think, we, you know, we live in our world, the time that I have with them, right? You know, my chief of staff, she meets with them and giving them, you know, different little life lessons and then they talk about those things. But again, it's not something that anybody really wants to talk about consistently. It's like it's the elephant in the room. You know, let's just coexist. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of the reality. Hmm. And do you feel like there's more that sports should be doing to have an impact? then or uh, why why sports you know like yeah i think the athletes are doing what they feel that they can do um i think the nba get you know partnering with the players association to try to put major dollars toward fighting social injustice i think that's a start but you know where is everybody else uh, big business you know wall street i mean everybody has a responsibility for this i don't think athletes or the sports Markets are responsible for the issues that are present. Could there be more black general managers? Could there be more black head coaches? Absolutely. You know, but again, I think those are things that we just continue to push for and strive for. And hopefully we eventually get a little more of a, a level playing field. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of live events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Has this been a stressful year for you? No, I mean, I, I don't really get too stressed about much, but my team, you know, I've dealt with some loss this year. I lost my, my father. Um, so that, you know, that's that's been all that stress. You know, I think that's the real stress. I mean, I love what I do. I mean, this is a a blessing to be able to still be a part of a game that's I've been playing since I was seven, eight years old or even younger. But I think I had an opportunity to play it a long time, be a part of the game and now still be able to give back and, and teach the game. So I, I feel fortunate from that standpoint. But yeah, my mom, you know, she's 90, be 92 years old this year. 
for my dad. Obviously, they've been together all of my life and longer and for her to lose him. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, to deal with, with those things. But, you know, those are life things. But I don't have time to be stressed. I have to try to just keep moving and making sure that I'm I'm the answer to other people's problems and not try to dwell in my own, so to speak. When we talked before, it struck me that you you have a certain confidence about yourself in whatever environment you're going to find a way to make it through whatever's in front of you. Certainly the sense I got from you as a player, didn't matter what system you were in, you're going to find a way to have an impact. I think it's being able to adjust and adapt, you know, even when people don't think that you can. I mean, I think it goes back to when I got traded to the Dallas Mavericks and I was playing, Don Nelson was the coach at the time. So it's like, Stackhouse, what's going to happen? Is he going to accept his role of coming off the bench? I'm like, man, I even got here. I hadn't even got to a practice yet. And there's already questions about what I'll accept. But Nelly, when we first talked, he's like, man, I got six starters. That's how he started the conversation. I got six starters. I mean, like I was a six man myself, but you're going to play starter minutes. You're going to be there at the end of games. It's just only five guys to start, but I got six starters. And the way he approached that and just brought it to me, man, it just it calmed all my anxieties or any bad thoughts about it and to the point to where I embraced it, man. And next thing I know, in that role and people seeing me in that role feel like I accepted a role that, man, when I took off my jersey to walk to check in the game, there was already standing ovations in the gym. So I got pretty much more celebration from being a six man than I would if I was in the starting lineup. So I just think, man, that's it for me, being able to adapt and adjust. I became a guy who was called selfish early on when I was averaging 30-some points to uh, a guy that you know, I wanted to have in my locker room to mentor my young guys because I was able to teach them how to accept roles. And I had a, a real story to tell them and to share with them about how you can have success with less. And I think that's really the message that I give to our guys, man. Like, I know everybody wants to play a ton of minutes. I get it. But again, you got to earn it. And at the same time, be accepting of your role. Keep getting better every day. And whatever role that's asking you, and your role can expand. And if you do that, I've never, ever seen it in any season of basketball where some good things don't happen for you. And I've been in the game a long time. So that's my message and my sell to them to keep working, keep doing what you're doing. It's going to turn. And I think they're starting to see it now. You mentioned that the last game you played with fans was almost a year ago. What's it like to compete in an empty arena? You know what, uh, man, it's really like, I don't even notice it. I'm so locked into the 94 feet and the guys inside the line. Most of the time when, it, when we're in arena with fans, I don't even really feel the fans. You know, I'm, I'm so locked in on what's going on, trying to see all 10 guys on the floor. I think that's that's where you really grow as a coach, you know, when you're able to see all 10 guys and kind of what's going on. Do your players miss having fans out there or is it some ways easier for you and for them with one less layer of distraction. I think that's been a message for them. Like, man, we got to create our own enthusiasm. We're better at it. We were, weren't good at the beginning of the year, but our guys have gotten better. They got some chance. They got some different things going on. So we go to other places and we're like the noisiest group out there, you know, because the fans are still having to be spaced out somewhat. And we're still there in that little, little circle. So it's like us against the world. If I asked you what's at stake in this moment, for you, for your team, what do you feel like is at stake? 
think you're always you're building your your reputation as a coach. You're building your reputation as players. I think we all have aspirations of, of wanting to be successful. So, I mean, I think there's always something at stake. You got to be able to have a, a plan and understand in your mind what your expectations are, what your goals are, and you can't get sidetracked by anything. And, and I think that's the message to our guys. So I think those are just little life lessons that we try to talk about, you know, on a daily basis to stay grounded and to stay centered, to know that, yeah, you know, we, we all want to be successful. But, you know, we got to do the things that it requires to have that success. When you talk about being successful, there's a dialogue in some business about the value of failing and failing fast and what you learn from failure. How do you talk to your team about loss, about losses, about when you're behind? I think you really have to take lessons from losses. We go back and we watch the film and we understand that we didn't do what we were supposed to do in this situation. That's why they scored. When I grade the defense, sometimes I put check scored. All right. Like we check. We did everything that we were supposed to do within our scheme, but we don't do that enough times. And I think that that's how we hold guys accountable. Like, you know, guy may have five mistakes. You got one blow by. You didn't, you know, help the helper. You didn't contest the shot. So that's minus three. You got a steal. You got a deflection you know, or draw a charge, that's plus two. And so that's how we, you know, hold them accountable. And young guys, they're going to have minus nine, minus seven, minus, you know, and trying to see that the little older guys, they probably have minus three, minus four. And once everybody numbers start to dwindle, then the game's going to do what it's supposed to do. Right now we're top three offense in the, in the SEC. So it's about the defensive side of the ball, making sure that we're more accountable there. I don't even have to be the coach. They know what we're supposed to do. So now we got to go out there and execute it longer and harder. We ain't worried about the losses, man. Like with records, man, you, that can turn so fast once you get on the road. But once they do it, man, we might not, you know what I'm saying? We're good to run off 10 or 11 on these people. You know what I'm saying? That's the conversation that we're having. When are we going to stop beating ourselves? That's the question. That's how I coach. I want you to take pride in to stop seeing yourself on this film with me telling you this time at the time. Again, at some point, you got to be fed up and say, OK, enough is enough. I'm going to do my job. When enough of us do that, do our job consistently, we're going to have the success. There's no doubt in my mind that's what's going to happen. And when those principles take hold, you don't have to be holding them accountable because they're holding each other accountable. Absolutely, man. You said a mouthful right there. Like I said, it's cool for me to say it, cool for our coaches to say it. But when guys that you hang out with and you talk about like, man, this, you know, come on, man, do your job. You know, like that's the leadership. And I'm getting that now. We did it at a level that I haven't had a team that I've coached in the last four years do it against Mississippi State. That was the best defensive grade that I've had since I've been coaching. Like 68 percent of our defensive possessions we got correct. I mean, like normally you're just going to be somewhere in the 40s or 50s, you know, just half, half. And basketball is a game of mistakes. But if you're doing it in the 60s, man, you can put that win on the left-hand side every time. I noticed like these metrics are really important to you. When did you tune in on that these numbers and metrics was the way to measure the teams? I got that from Dean Smith. Everything that I'm doing, I learned from him. We come in and watch those games. And it's like, yeah, Jerry, yeah, you had... 
you were flat. You got three mistakes and three good. And you got and you had good savvy. So you you were flat. Well, I want to see you plus, though. I want to see you plus. You know, so it's like that's my same spiel, man. Let's get plus. Let's get positive. So it's not. And I believe like the analytics. Yeah, I know analytics has a place. I mean, I think it's a, a great tool. But he was ahead of the game. You know what I'm saying? You can call it analytics, you call it whatever you want it, but I call it what I learned in Chapel Hill for playing with Dean Smith. Well, thank you, Jerry. Thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate you, bud. Thank you, man. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future, and Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large, and Masters of Scale host, Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producer is Jordan McLeod. Scripts by Christina Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson and Lena Sillison. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Adam Heiner, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapidresponse to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.